Hi, I'm Greg Schaefer, and welcome to the Virtual CISO Moment Wrap-Up for Friday, September 30th, 2022. You've probably heard about this if you haven't, uh, and particularly if you have an Exchange server on-prem, you need to know about this now. From the Hacker News, Microsoft confirms two new Exchange zero-day flaws being used in the wild. Apparently, this is impacting Exchange Server 2013, 2016, and 2019. And according to the article that Microsoft also confirmed that it is aware of, quote, limited targeted attacks, unquote, weaponizing the flaws to obtain initial targeted access to targeted systems. But Microsoft did emphasize that authenticated access to the vulnerable Exchange Server is required to achieve successful exploitation. They also note that Online customers, Microsoft Exchange online customers are not affected. So if you have on-prem, you're fine. You're not fine. If you do online, then there's an issue. And that kind of begs the question about why would you want to have this server on-prem? I'm sure that there are still instances where it's preferable and required, but it's tough for me to think about any of them right now. One might be, well, to make sure that you keep all the information on site, but by its very definition, a mail server is involved in the transfer of information. Yeah, it could be encrypted. I understand that. So interesting story. Bottom line, if you're an exchange admin, check this out and make sure that you follow the remediation actions in the article. An update on the Optus breach. You might recall that this occurred late last week. This is um, the subsidiary, Optus is a subsidiary of Singapore Telecommunications. They had a breach which may end up being the largest in Australia's history. There could be some repercussions, particularly for those 2.8 million whose passport or license numbers were taken, and there could be identity theft and fraud. Of course, Optus says that they're investigating and have notified all the folks you have to, police, regulators, government officials. But this is ongoing in that there was a ransom threat made and apparently 10,000 records were released. And then the person who released the records had a change of heart and took that down and said, sorry, that's my mistake. Didn't mean to do it. Maybe they had a change of heart or maybe they realized that they weren't going to get the ransom or maybe they realized that the investigation was too strong. But then other folks have apparently taken what was already out there and released it. The article goes on to note that a class action lawsuit could soon be filed against the company. I would not be surprised. And also some discussion about how this is really pointing out how there are a little bit of um, gaps, if you will, in security and privacy laws in Australia. One thing I found interesting, for example, in some countries, quote from the article, in some countries, the company would have faced hundreds of millions of dollars in penalties, but Australia's fine is capped at about $2 million. Now, also, it goes on to say that security experts have also suggested reforming data retention laws so telecommunication companies don't have to keep sensitive data for so long. Optus said that they were required to keep the identity data for six years under the current rules. So interesting stuff going on there. From bleepingcomputer.com, Brute Retail has been cracked. So like Cobalt Strike that many of you are aware of, Brute Retail is a toolkit used by red teamers to deploy agents called badgers. This is a quote from the article on compromised network devices and use them to execute commands remotely and spread further onto a network. So really how this came about is that Cobalt Strike has been cracked beforehand. And the theory is that that folks started to move towards Brute Retail. Now, in the past, again, according to the article, 
Brut Mattel's developers had noted that they could revoke the licenses for any customers abusing Brut Mattel for malicious purposes. But if the copy now is cracked, and apparently it is, and has been released already on the internet, then there is no license key that you need to put in. You don't have to do any of that. And apparently one of the more concerning things with regards to this is that Brut Mattel has the ability to generate shellcode that isn't easily detected by security software at this time. So the threat environment has just changed a bit. I've talked about deep fakes before. Now from the register, there's an article that dives a little bit deeper, no pun intended, into deep fakes. They note that, and I've mentioned this before too, that, quote, corporations need to worry about deep fakes as criminals begin using them to create fake individuals such as job seekers to scam their way into roles or to impersonate executives on video calls to hoodwink employees into transferring companies, funds, or data. Now, of course, they've been already used in disinformation campaigns, like with the Russian invasion of campaign, but it can also be used in extortion attacks, such as creating fake evidence in order to force folks to pay the ransom. Now, the article does go on to talk a little bit about things that you can do, but really it sounds a lot of the same-o, same-o. Um, top of the list is using multi-factor authentication, should be the standard for any authentication of sensitive or critical accounts. I think by this point in time, if you're not using MFA and it's available, that's that's you're 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 missing the mark completely. Also, training staff on what to look and listen out for when it comes to deep fake technology. This is what I found the most interesting because I was hoping for more here, but it really just says that quote users should prioritize the use of the biometric patterns that are less exposed to the public, like irises and fingerprints. I'm kind of wondering how you can check irises and particularly fingerprints on a deep faked video. If anybody can educate me on that, I'd love to hear from you. From Business Wire, a report from Trellix where the title is 60% of cybersecurity professionals feel they are losing ground against cyber criminals. Now, I'll have to tell you straight out, whenever I see a survey that has a really round, nice, divisible number as in small fractions, like 60%, I immediately start to question and look to see what the sampling size was. So was it 10? And this is six out of 10. But actually, this was a sampling of 9,000 global security professionals as far as um, different areas in cybersecurity. So a few interesting metrics here. 89% of the respondents describe their current security model as siloed. And we all understand that if you have a siloed model, that's going to lead to some particular issues, both overlap and function and not understanding where your information is and also how your controls are applied. The three quarters of them are roughly three quarters, 73% quote are likely allocating budget to advanced solutions, including XDR to enable an integrated security approach. But here's the one metric that I find really interesting and I think applicable to small and mid-sized businesses. 84% estimate that their organization lost up to 10% of revenue from security breaches in the last 12 months. So you can do a rough hand calculation. If you lose 10% of your revenue in a given year, now that's going to be huge. That's going to be something that could be definitely, at the very least, affect the operations of the business, but could be a business killer. So the article goes on to talk a little bit more about XDR. And I think part of this is maybe a survey that's either 
guised in disguise as a bit or used for um, marketing for XDR. And I don't really have an issue with that. So that long as the data behind it is valid, which is why I included it here. So, but you can check that out a little bit more in depth. The uh, link is in the show notes. Finally, from microfocus.com, cyber insurance customers need to be more cyber resilient. From the article, cyber liability insurance has become a popular way of transferring risks for businesses, but it's not so easy to obtain or keep. It goes on to say that cyber risk has been growing in parallel with digital transformation for more than 20 years. COVID-19 has accelerated the trend. And actually, they have an interesting graph that came, I think, from Bloomberg Law, which shows an exponential increase in cyber insurance renewable premium rates quarter on quarter change. And it's pretty drastic if you see the difference just between 2020 and 2022. Now, obviously, cyber insurance is an issue that a lot of small and mid-sized businesses face, depending upon what level and type of information that you are storing and what your controls are in place. But the key takeaway from this article, which I really liked, was I'm going to quote the entire paragraph. As the cyber insurance market tightens, insurers screen for clients with security controls that are more closely aligned them to higher standards. The weaker the policyholder's risk management program, the greater the risk to insurance providers. A lower risk profile with use of stronger security controls presents less risk to insurance providers. I'm going to have a few comments about standards and risk management in 30 seconds. I've talked on here beforehand about the necessity of understanding the type of virtual CISO if you as a small or mid-sized business are going to um, contract with. And what I mean by that is that, as far as type, is that is it actually a risk management professional or is it more of a first line of defense technical um, type of professional? And there's nothing wrong with the latter, but you have to understand as a small or mid-sized business what your contracting with. And the most effective virtual CISO is one that sits in second line of defense. Look up the three lines of defense model. I've talked about that before, but basically first line is operational uh, management, like configuring your firewall and uh, managing your antivirus. Second line is risk management. Third line is audit, which makes sure that first and second line are doing what they need to do. It's the best model that I've come across for managing information security across an organization beyond the cyber. But this article takes it a little bit further that that I enjoy. Now, sometimes what cyber insurance agencies would do is that they would send you a questionnaire about basic stuff about what controls you have in place. And depending upon how you answer that and how you approach that, um, different companies would do different things. But here, they're talking about aligning, aligning to standards. Now, for some of the folks on the listeners on the podcast that are not sure what we mean by higher standards here, it doesn't mean like the the proverbial like holding somebody to a higher standard. It means, at least the way I interpreted it, is that we're talking about actual standards and frameworks that are out there. So one of the first things I do, and I'm, I'm going to reference a prospect call I had today, was I will ask a prospect after they've described their business a little bit, I'd a, I would ask them, well, what information do you have that needs protecting? What types of data? And then as it aggregates in for, into information. And so what am I trying to find out here? Well, on, on the surface first, I want to see if they actually know that. And if they come back and say, well, we're not sure, then that's a whole different conversation. But if they 
come back and say, well, yes, we have this sort of data and that sort of data and so forth. Like, for example, if they have uh, personally um, personal data on European Union citizens, then, well, then maybe they're beholden to GDPR or if they have um, financial information, credit card information, PCI, those sorts of things, because it helps to try to understand, well, what sort of framework should we work with the client to align them to first? Now, I prefer usually to start out with something a little bit simpler, like the NIST CSF or the CIS 18, but then to move further into mapping to other frameworks. The point being, though, is that this article, and I think the way that the cyber insurance industry is going, is that they're asking the policyholders to look at this more from a risk management perspective as opposed to a control implementation perspective and reporting. I find that a little bit interesting in that insurance by nature is risk management. And maybe, maybe I missed the boat on this, but that maybe that should have been the approach in the beginning because sending somebody a questionnaire and just check the box, that's not really measuring or, or encouraging risk management among the small or mid-sized business. So the insurance agents, uh, uh, field is, are the experts in risk management. They've been doing that for years and years and years. And they're the ones that are trying to figure out how to better provide coverage without it being so expensive that it's not attainable for small and mid-sized businesses by encouraging them to adopt a risk management program. And most of the frameworks out there will have some measure of that, some shape or form. So it's very encouraging. And I thought that that was worth sharing with you all. Well, that's it for today. I hope you all have a great weekend. We have an awesome episode coming up on Tuesday with Gary Chan. He is a security mentalist. And if you don't know what a security mentalist is, listen and watch. It's pretty interesting. Until then, stay secure.